hot flashes, vaginal dryness, painful sex, low libido, recurrent urinary tract infections, weight gain, insomnia, orgasm? What orgasm? Menopause is a very special time, and I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology, the medical director of the Northwestern Medicine Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause, a practicing gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. My mantra has always been, if women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information on all things menopause. When I wrote my Sex Rx book, my editor asked me to include a section on the impact of religion and culture on sexual function and dysfunction. It was only after I started to research the topic that I realized just how fascinating and just how complex this topic was. And in the three or four pages I devoted to it, I didn't even begin to do it justice. But if I learned nothing else, it was that while it's tempting to make sweeping generalizations about the impact of religion and culture on sexual function and practices, it's important to acknowledge that within the same community, even the same family, there may be very different attitudes and experiences. Today, my guest is Dr. Samina Rahman, a clinical assistant professor of OBGYN at Northwestern University and one of the few experts in the study of the impact of religion on sexual function. Dr. Rahman published a pivotal scientific paper in Sexual Medicine Reviews about female sexual dysfunction among Muslim women. I've also had the pleasure of hearing her lecture at medical conferences on the impact of religion on female sexual function. So welcome, Dr. Rahman. Hi, good morning or good afternoon. Um, I'm so happy to be here. I love your podcast. It's been great to listen to thus far. So you're doing, you're rocking it. <laughs> well, thank you. And I'm so excited to have you on because this is a topic that we've just never talked about before. Yeah. All right. So let me start with this. You know, we're, we're taping this podcast just a few days after the death of Queen Elizabeth. Um, and when we were talking earlier today, you mentioned that among the many things that the Queen influenced was sexual practices. I mean, I never explained that one. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, and you may see it's trending sort of on social media these days about the people who are and aren't mourning the queen's death. But there is, um, I, I think there was something trending and I have to check the validity of this, but it said every six days, there's a country that celebrates their independence from, from Great Britain. So I don't, I don't know if that's exactly true, but we know that the colonization was a big part of, um, you know, how they expanded their empire early on. And, so, you know, I'm South Asian. My parents are from Pakistan. Um, and so, you know, we know that, you know, we were called the, the, the Indian subcontinent was obviously colonized by the British. Um, in my, you know, teaching and understanding um, religion and sexuality, it's amazing to see how much of an impact actual colonialism had on sexual practices. Um, you know, there was there's a lot of literature out there, if you dig deep enough, that um Prior to colonization, and, and I'm speaking particularly to Muslim countries, but, you know, you could probably say that about different other um, areas as well. But, you know, sexuality and sexual practices are well defined in the um, Muslim literature. Like there's details about it from predating, you know, um, European colonization. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the scholars and, you know, sex, sexual ethics in Islam will agree that the literature sort of disappeared or got sort of uh, swept under the under the rug after colonization happened. And when the freedom actually occurred and, and these countries were liberated from colonization, 
the puritanical values that were brought into the system still remain. And actually what you had is a resurgence of sort of like, if you talk, look at like Egypt and the Muslim Brotherhood and some of those areas, you know, they went really on the, on the right wing when it comes to some of these issues. Um, and it became one of these things where it's like, you know, it was part of the culture before colonization happened. I mean, people were talking about it. There was literature about it. There, er, the erotology, like the study of erotica, was you know very heavy in Islamic science, and so um, it kind of disappeared after the you know puritanical values uh, settled in, and then it was sort of embraced as our own. And I think that's the thing you will know that most Muslims uh, are practicing. Um, uh, Muslims probably don't get is that this was actually really embedded into our culture. Um, you know, the discussions around it, the do's and don'ts, you know, specifics about sexual pleasure. Um, and it kind of just disappeared and no one talked about the taboo became real after, after the colonization. That's so interesting because I think we are on different social media because I have not seen that trending on my social media. Oh, really? <laughs> no, and 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 really, when when you mentioned it, it was it was completely news to me. And, yeah. and I wonder, aside from the colonization, when you look at just Great Britain in in general, and yeah. one of the things that struck me is there was a recent review of religion, sex frequency, and sexual satisfaction, specifically in Britain, and and it talked about the impact of religion. And it started off by saying that you know only sixteen percent of British women say that their religion is even important to them. So. First of all, does does that strike you as being surprising or accurate? And, and do you think the same is true in U.S. women? I mean, I think at this point, um, you know, you don't uh, unless you're in smaller pockets or circles or that's your surrounding. I, I don't know that we see um, religion that much at the forefront in discussions about sexuality, uh, even across the board, unless that's something that you're in a practice that you're engaged in. And so when it comes to. And I think, you know, nowadays people do pick and choose what they feel like is appropriate. I think people have always picked and choose, chosen, but yeah. I think now maybe they're yeah. more forthright about saying. More cool about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I think that, you know, now with, with so much sexual awareness and sexual openness, people are more likely to say like, oh, yeah, I mean, I, I had you know, sex. It wasn't a big deal, whatever. And so, um, uh, whereas in other subcultures, like I still see in our community, in the Muslim community in North America, that the taboo is just is real. I mean, and even if you try to kind of break away at it, when I have conversations with my patients, um, you know, they feel comfortable around me speaking about it, but otherwise, like, they're not going to say it. And, and religion for them has had a tremendous impact on how they practice or they didn't, uh, you know, um, follow the, the rules. Yeah, and now they present dealing with themselves the, publicly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, exactly. but the other thing that struck me is in that same survey, this British survey, um, the women who said that, that 16% of women who said, yes, religion is very important to me. Those were the 16% of women that were having the least amount of sex, the religious ones. So right, did, right, did that right. surprise you or would you have predicted that? Yeah. No, I could totally predict that. I think, and, and even in, in like when I'm at practice where I'm dealing with sexual dysfunction and obviously like people come to, a lot of brown people come to me because I'm, I'm brown. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, we have that happening. But what I see is that, you know, when I speak to patients about, you know, where they stand on sex and, and, and how it might have impacted um, that, we do see the amount, the religiosity in general actually does impact how they uh, interpret, you know, sex and how, what they should do about it. And I think those are the patients sometimes who are who are in this um, uh, 
who have the most significant sexual issues because, you know, they kind of like embrace some of these really puritanical beliefs and no one talks about it. No one says anything. They think this is normal. Um, and so it doesn't surprise me at all. I think I remember being at an IPPS conference and there was an abstract presented about religiosity um, in its relationship to um, sexual pain. And the people that had identified um, as most religious did have higher, um, did score higher on the sexual pains course. Which, which also so, doesn't surprise me. You know, many, yeah. if not most religions, of course, devote a great deal of importance to maintaining virginity before marriage. And do you mm-hmm. think that, that women who've been ingrained to believe that premarital sex is evil are sometimes not just able to like shake that belief and they continue to feel that sex is wrong? even if they're married and expected to become sexually active. I mean, I guess what I'm asking is, is in these kinds of cultures and religions, is there more sexual dysfunction even after marriage because they have in their heads that sex is bad? Absolutely. I think that's very true. And I'll, I'll talk about one of the surveys that I was involved with for a study. Um, but in general, when you, when you, when you're told your whole life, keep your legs closed, don't have sex, like, you know, don't even talk in and some like really traditional cultures, like don't even talk to men. I mean, I can speak from my own experience. My parents immigrated from Pakistan. You know, I was I dead set on being a doctor from early on. And so they're like, yeah, yeah, study, study, study. And then once I got my medical degree, they're like, hey, get married, you know. <laughs> and then when you're married and you realize like, OK, now I'm supposed to be able to have sex. And, you know, I had I got married late. I was like, you know, for my cultural standards, like 32. So then you're trying to have sex and. You know, you can't because in your head, all you ever heard was don't, don't do it. Don't do this. Don't yeah. Do this. So then you so th- those are the patients that will have, you know, pelvic floor dysfunction and or vaginismus, depending, you know, on how long they're appearing it. And so um, that I think is the most. I mean, and I tell my patients that all the time because, you know, full disclosure, like I suffered from that, you know, for the first few months of my marriage. And um it was so interesting to, for me to think like, I'm a gynecologist. I treat this stuff like, you know, you don't, and the other issue is you don't learn enough about it in residency, which I know that we yeah. all know that that's a big issue, but you're, you're dealing with something and you're like, why is it that my 16 year old patient's having all this wonderful sex and, I'm, and I just can't do it because you can't mentally break that indoctrination, the acculturation and the lack of, you know, sort of knowledge in general. Like, I mean, you know, as knowledgeable as you are as studying gynecology and knowing, understanding, you know, about all of this, all of these issues around reproduction, you still might not have enough of a, you know, and, and well, I trained what 17 years ago. So we definitely weren't speaking about it back then. So, I mean, I think that was the most, and so I tell my patients that I'm like, yeah, I must, I know how frustrating it is for you because, you know, you've been told your whole life, don't have sex, don't open your leg. And now all of a sudden, you're in a situation where you're supposed to learn how to do it. And sometimes if the men don't have experience either, you're dealing with two people that have never had intercourse. But you know the thing that's that's most striking about your story, and and thanks for like, you know, being out and and sharing the fact that that you had this was when you first got married, is, is there's two things here. First of all, it's just how strong that cultural and religious is on someone who's clearly, you know, educated, who is, you know, worldly, and that's still a big thing. And but the second thing is how little we really learn in medical school and residency about sexuality. Because you're saying, okay, here I'm a gynecologist and I had vaginismus and I was blindsided by it and I didn't really know what to do about it. Yes. And and to think about that, what what 
the the other message that's out there is if a gynecologist has this condition and he hasn't been yeah. about it until, you know, like me and you and, and other sexual medicine experts, this is something that we learned yeah. long after medical school and and residency. So yes, that's so so interesting. You know, and, and then on the flip side of it, uh, you know, there are religions that actually do focus on female sexual pleasure. You know, I, we, I've talked so many times about how the fact that we live in a society that, let's face it, is predominantly focused on male sexual pleasure. But in, in some religions, and, and certainly Judaism is one that I know, the husband actually has an obligation to make sure that his wife is sexually satisfied, cannot force her to have sex if she doesn't want to. And th- there is a lot of discussion about pleasure. So I'm just kind of wondering, is that unique to Judaism or are there other religions that also acknowledge that women should have pleasure during sexual activity? Absolutely. I mean, I think if you look at some of the world religions, um, you know, not even that all the Abrahamic ones, but I can say, I can speak from Islam. Like we, it's definitely like when you look at sort of how we govern our life with, you know, obviously the same, what's in the Quran, which is our holy book, plus or minus, you know, how, um, you know, the prophet lived his life. So the, the combination of these things is, is the guidance that we usually get on all aspects of life. There is actually a focus on, um, you know, pleasing your wife, make, ensuring she gets an orgasm, you know, these kind of things. If we look at some of the, um, the erotology from, uh, you know, predating, like I said, colonization. The other thing is, um, I, I know in, in all, you know, even in Hinduism and other cultures, like, yeah, I mean, in the con in the right context right like they're not saying in misconduct around sex like adultery or you know even premarital sex like these are not the things we're speaking of when they're talking about a woman being uh, a woman achieving sexual pleasure um but it is ingrained in all of these um cultures to a man and woman when they're engaging in um sexual activity you know it's it's not meant for procreation only it is meant for pleasure um a woman should demand sexual pleasure and it's 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 in the it's in the it's in the text it's in, it's, okay but let me ask you wait stop for yeah. a second okay. listen, i gotta get this it's one okay. thing for it to be in the text it's another thing uh-huh. for women and oh, the men yeah. to get the memo so your, yeah. your practice no memos is, is predominantly muslim and you yeah. see women and are they coming in and saying, oh, my God, I'm so glad it's in the text because I am having yeah. great orgasmic sex. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, it's 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 not no one's gotten a memo. I think very few people have gotten a memo across the board. Um, there are some, you know, leaders who are trying to get the memo out there. There's a couple of um, erotologists that uh, there's one that's his name is um, Hakeem Udande. He's actually East African, but he talks a lot about like um, sexual pleasure for you know, Muslim women in the context of his culture. Um, and um, the truth of the matter is that's what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to get the message out there. We're trying to tell the patients like, yeah, you should demand pleasure. You know, it's not okay that, you know, you have no libido, you know, you don't have to give it up just because he said so. Like these things are not, you know, uh, within the context of even the script, but that's also something you should you should demand on your own. And so they're very like, wow, great. And I have a lot of patients who, come in with their husbands and you know they're happy to do it um and help the 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 wives and stuff but of course the the big issue that they are always coming for are you know not able to consummate marriage or these kind of things well so i think once they get a huge population because you see the folks that are having problems the people that are having fabulous 
sex are not going. Yeah, they're not. Be, you know, you they right, they're just right, you know, right. going about their lives. They're just so, enjoying, but yeah, right. We, I, you and I both. I mean, we, we see the problem. Yeah, yeah. So, so it does right, definitely exactly. do it. You know, but but it's funny yeah. because I think when you think of um, when I think of a religion that maybe they all did get the memo and kind of, if you will, the religion that's kind of known for the gold ribbon for sexual pleasure and sexual leniency. I think it's the Buddhists. I mean, you know, oh, I think yeah. Tantric sex and sexual yoga. And I read someplace that, um, according to the Tibetans, it's necessary to have really good sex in order to attain Buddhahood, the state of complete enlightenment. So is, is that right. your impression as well? Do you, and you think Buddhists yeah. are having more satisfying sex than people in other Yeah, that's why I don't see them in my office. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I never see the Buddhists in my office. But yeah, I do have, you know, colleagues that I've spoken to about it. And, and I, I think, you know, other than like whatever they define as sexual misconduct, you know, it's very much encouraged, you know, you should focus on your the desire should be met. And, and it's it's very interesting that like, like, it's true, I don't see many Buddhists in my house. Yeah, we, we could take some lessons from the Buddhists. You know, <laughs> I know, when yeah. you and I talk about sexual um, sexuality, obviously, we're, we're talking about a lot more than just penile vaginal intercourse. Um, right. And I'm, I'm curious about the attitude in different religions on things like oral sex and anal sex and masturbation. So start with talking about, you know, what the uh, approach is in, in the Muslims and then if any other religion yeah. you want to comment on. Yeah, I think, um, you know, for the most part, um, whatever is going to help your um, partner achieve, you know, sexual, uh, like the orgasms and sexual pleasure um, are not so, you know, in Islam, we talk about like haram and halal, which are like forbidden and allowable. And then there's like this in between like mafru, which is like, okay, okay if you have to do it, do it. But if you, uh, if you look at the, te the text and, you know, how it's interpreted and I think, you know, oral sex definitely is permissible for, you know, the achieving of, you know, pleasure. Um, even masturbation might be in the gray zone, but there's definitely some stuff said about, you know, uh, allowing it for certain conditions and, and situations. Um, I think, unfortunately, like anal sex is still one of those that like it would be hard pressed to find any religion that's really like, yeah, go out. Go for it. No, but there's <laughs> a difference between just not saying anything about it versus exactly. specifically saying, if you do this, you are definitely going to help kind of thing. Absolutely. And so like, actually, if you look at some of the texts like earlier on um, in Islam and even the religious leaders, like when Islam was spreading, there was a lot of homosexuality happening. Yeah. And if you, if you look at all that stuff there, you know, it was more on a don't ask, don't tell basis. Like we're not going to report you to anybody or, talk, you know, get you flogged or anything like that, but just don't talk about it. Um, but it, and I think that's where the struggle um, in terms of homosexuality right. is in the Muslim community, you know, because it's, it's still, you know, pretty clear, like, anal sex no but like there are right, people right, right. But, still but, okay so you know when, when we think in terms of anal sex i mean obviously in the male gay population there's a lot of anal sex going on but we right. also see anal sex sex even increasingly so yeah. in in heterosexual relations right and even in right. gay women with having penetration with toys for anal yeah. play. So, yeah. but, but I think what I'm hearing you say and what makes sense is that the, bro the prohibition on anal sex wasn't about don't go there because it's nasty. It's because of the implication that only gay guys do this, number one. And number two, I mean, let's face it, there's no procreation, which of course is, you know, the Absolutely. whole purpose from religion of having sex is to make right. babies. And, you know, no matter how hard right. you try with anal sex, it just, it's not. He's gonna, not going to have it. <laughs> so, you know, and it's, 
All right. So you mentioned um, homosexuality, which we know where the Catholics stand on that. And we know, you know, where most religions stand on that. To your knowledge, are there any religions that say come right out and say it's OK? Like it's OK. I, I don't know of any that are just, you know, really uh, out there advocating for homosexual behavior. But um, it would be a popular religion well, if somebody did, you know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think obviously, you know, there's uh, people that practice the religions, uh, all the religions who are homosexuals, and, and, and there's now a voice for a lot of them in different cultures. So I think that's important. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously, especially when it comes to religion, um, biologically, the purpose of sex is reproduction. And in fact, the timing of sexual activity that's dictated in a lot of religions is to ensure that you are going to have sexual activity when there's maximum fertility. And that's also one of the reasons I think why every single religion forbids intercourse during menstruation. I mean, that's that's very common. Um, yeah, it's common. You know, because why should you have sex, of course, if, if pregnancy is not going to happen? But I've often thought about what about after menopause, when obviously there's, you know, we can also say after hysterectomy and other situations as well. But when, you, when we think about sexuality and religion, there's very little attention paid to what happens in even just a typical heterosexual marital relationship after a woman enters menopause is, is, is sexual activity still okay? Is it encouraged? Is it a, is it a good thing? Um, I'm, I am not Catholic. Um, so I went on Catholic.com, which is my source. And it actually said that, you know, and I put in the, the search menopause and, and sex and it said, you know, absolutely. Um, that uh, that there should be sex after menopause because of this expression of marital love. And okay. So what is your general sense of um, the stance of most religions on sexuality after menopause? I think most of them actually, um, you know, do concur in that, you know, continuing marital love, you know, still trying to please your partner, um, you know, because, the overarching theme, I think, if you look, if you dig deep into most of the, um, you know, world religions, pleasure is still the predominant reason that sex is um, allowed and encouraged uh, between partners. And so I think, so you, you know, really you, get believe, you really think that you really think that, it's the said that yeah, is, is, is pleasure. I thought it, I think it's reproduction. No, I mean, no, if you look at the if you look at the sort of foundations of, you know, at least, you know, Islam and I think even like Hinduism and Buddhism uh, and Judaism, I, they all kind of dictate like, you know, sex between a man and a woman that are married. It's supposed to be, you know, pleasure. Of course, you should try to reproduce, but the pleasure is the most important sort of factor because, it, you know, uh, and it, you know, improves, you know, overall health, overall relationships, all that stuff. So I think that is very much, you know, in there. What I would say is, you know, in menopause, you're not, you don't, if you look for like specific texts on, you know, menopause and religion, I think a lot of it is around like what happens if you bleed after you think, you know, you're in menopause and are you, because a lot of women who are strict about their religious beliefs, I think look at menopause as a time to really get absorbed in, in their religion and, and do stuff that, you know, okay, I can pray all the time instead of, you know, avoiding those seven days or, you know, fasting during the month of Ramadan, but. I think that um, uh, with menopause, you're not going to find much more other than, and I think that's something we need to talk about because the few studies that have been done in like Muslim countries like Turkey and Malaysia, 
it's just like no one has any real knowledge about menopause and they don't know what to do with their symptoms and they don't know what to do when the sex gets painful. I guess I'm supposed to stop having sex now, this kind of thing. So I think, you know, that is one of my goals is to try to get some more information out there into the community. Because when I talk to patients about it uh, in menopause, they're like, oh, you know, it's kind of like, you know, too painful. So I think my time is over and whatever, you know. So Right. So they're not um, interested in looking for solutions. It's kind of like uh, I'm just done. You know, it's interesting. A few years ago, I was working in a medical clinic in very, very remote Kenya. And so um, when I was talking to my uh, interpreter, and I wanted to know, well, what is the attitude of the women in the community about mm-hmm. um, uh, menopause and about their sexuality after menopause? And she just like looked at me like I was the stupidest person on earth and said, our life expectancy yeah. is just 32. You know, people don't get to menopause. Yeah. And if they do, they they're, just, they're just happy to be alive. And and in this very remote community, um, you know, most right. of the men had multiple wives and it was like, fine, let the younger ones deal with it. And it was just an entirely right. different approach. So, approach, right. and, and I think that that's something that, that really hasn't been studied much. The other thing I'm curious about is you, you kind of mentioned it a little bit, you know, when we talk Talk about, um, you know, in religions where sexual activity is encouraged for reproduction, that there are often very specific recommendations and, and laws about when you should have sex. I mean, Orthodox Jews are basically yeah. obligated to have intercourse two weeks before their period, which is obviously peak fertility. And, you know, right. have sex on the Sabbath is a mitzvah, you know, God's giving you extra credit. Yeah. And it's very clear right. in the Orthodox right. community. It's it's really you are you are given a roadmap of when you are supposed to have sexual relations as a married heterosexual couple. So is that true in, in other, in other religions to your knowledge? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I know in Islam we have, um, you know, there's, it's laid out, you know, especially when, when you shouldn't have sex, when you should, when when it's optimal time to have sex, um, you know, there's some texts actually, um, there's some text from like East Africa that even talks about, you know, the best time and way to pleasure like your partners. There's, um, I think it's referred to as kunyaza. Kunyaza is a type of pleasure that um, is actually pretty well known in the East African community, like over 150 years of of people trying to achieve this. And it's basically like squirting or having a female ejaculation during sex. And that's something that is kind of even defined and laid out in some of their literature. So um, I definitely think that, you know, the optimal times are usually around ovulation. But, you know, other than that, it's like where you're not supposed to have sex. Like don't have it during menstruation. Don't have it, yeah. you know, right after. So you it's more like don't do it. You know, this is when you yeah. should not do it as opposed to this yeah, is exactly. when I want you to do it. Right. Yeah, I want to talk about some of your special projects. I know you're doing some research okay. on sexual dysfunction and uh, sexual abuse in cis Muslim women. So talk about right. that a little bit and what you're finding. Oh, yes. I um, I, so I, I partnered with this group called Heart Women and Girls, which is a, um, a group that was formed. Uh, Nadia uh, Mohajer is, is the one that kind of founded it, but it's uh, she's, she's based out of Chicago. And we um, wanted to do some research because they do a lot of like sexual abuse and, um, you know, dealing with survivors of sexual abuse in the Muslim community, but also just sexual awareness in the Muslim community. So they're trying to spread some information out there. Um, and uh, it was I think it was a 20. We started the survey in 2020 and it looked and we sent it basically, you know, it was an Internet survey uh, during the pandemic. Was <laughs> I think there was so far there was 771 total people that responded 
in North Africa, I mean, North, North America, basically, um, United States and Canada. Um, and the age range was like 18 to 45. So unfortunately, I think the secondary um, one is going to be around the menopausal patients. But I was going to say, you, you blocked out my women. You blocked out my group. I know. Yeah, I, it's, it's funny. It was funny. Well, I just did a big paper on, on um, sexual dysfunction in postmenopause women for the journal Menopause, which is coming out in a few months. And when I was doing my research, almost every study I looked at that looked at sexual function and dysfunction stopped at like age 45 or 50 because they don't want that variable yeah. in there. But it also means right. that you don't get that information. So I'm sorry, I interrupted. So exactly. go on. No, but I'm not saying that that's going to be my secondary plan is to get it just for that other age group. But um, basically, um, of those women, I, and most of the people that answered were cis women, uh, you know, like educated um, college student or college college graduates or above. And it, uh, the study found, I think, 42 percent of those patients um, had sexual pain at some point in uh, their relationships. Um, and 65 percent did not seek any medical attention for it because I thought it was more on the normal side of things. So it, it was a pretty... Um, profound amount of uh, people that are experiencing social pain in this Muslim community. Um, and just looking at some of the sexual abuse statistics too, um, the, there was a lot of um, data that supported that religion was supporting their lack of desire to get treatment for either sexual pain or um, get help for sexual abuse. Like, you know, and, and they felt like they had to, you know, have sex with their partner you know, even when they didn't want to, some of these things. So it's it's interesting. I think we're working on trying to get it published. I did uh, I did um, present it at Ishwish last last year or the year before. I can't remember. And, and Ishwish um, for those who don't know about Ishwish, Ishwish is oh, the, the International um, Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. So it's right. which you and I are both members, kind of both active and yeah. being yes. out of the conferences together. Yeah, yeah. That's where all, all this data gets presented. It's a big sexual medicine. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I think that is, you know, um, we're going to work on publishing that um, in one of the, the journals, but um, there should be some more secondary data that comes out of that as well. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. Has anyone else really looked at that? Or are you the first large study? No, I think we're the first, at least in North America. There are patients, there are like um, studies if you look at other Muslim countries, because I'm actually working on a um, review article with one of my students on sexual pain in the Muslim community. Um, and it kind of a lot of the articles that we've actually pulled are um, like mainly from like Malaysia or Turkey or, you know, some of the North African Muslim countries. Mm -hmm. So you don't get much of the data from the other areas. Yeah. And vaginism is, is probably one of the predominant things that they all talk about. So. Not, not surprising. Um, you're also right. um, you're, you're launching a, a series on religion and sexuality with some other people. Talk about that a little bit. That is something that, you know, I'm in the process of working on. But yeah, we, um, with Heart, you know, actually, they just um, launched a little book on like a sexual guide for Muslim, um, uh, for, for Muslim, uh, not patients, but Muslim, uh, practicing Muslims. And so it just kind of talks about some of the basics around what you don't learn about sex. They're trying to just build some awareness. And I want to work with them on sort of some of the religion and sexuality and some of the issues that, um, we uh, are seeing with patients with patients who are of that background um, or uh, other religions. So it's kind of in the making, but I haven't done, done do a you, lot on it. Do you know yet at, at this point which religions are going to be covered? Um, probably 
we're, uh, we're thinking of focusing on the Abrahamic ones, but I actually want to bring in maybe Hinduism too and Buddhism. So maybe like those top five. So that's still in progress. So, well, I will be sure and put yes. links to your website in the program notes so that people can Absolutely. find Thank updates you. on that and know where to find that. Um, and you're also very active on social media. So I will put those links in the program. <laughs> I try to. Or try you and I both. I know we're trying to. Yeah. To be a little bit love better about that. I don't yeah, think people realize yeah. how much work social media is. It and is. It when is. You have a especially day if you want to do it authentic. It right. Yes. It, yeah. Especially if you want to be authentic to who you are. Like, it's really hard. <laughs> it's not, like, well, we were just talking about that earlier. You know, so many, and quite frankly, a lot of doctors on social media, they have someone else doing it for them. And I don't blame them. Right. Because it's a right. lot of work. It takes it's a, a lot, lot of work. Time, and we're spending yeah. our day in, in the clinic and seeing patients and in the operating room. And it's hard to keep up with social media. But we also both are on the same page as far as we're not going to let anyone else do it for us because it's our right. voice, it's our message, it's our education. Mm-hmm. So, you yeah. know, basically anything I put out there, and I know anything you put out there is coming awesome. from you, not from, from, not from yeah. someone that you've hired to do it. So, right. Right. yeah, exactly. we need more hours in the day. So We need more hours in the day. <laughs> and you've got a couple of kids and yeah, yeah, busy, good. busy. A three-year-old. Yeah, so, yeah. That keeps you busy. So what haven't I asked you? Is there anything I haven't asked you about that you would like to talk about or that you want to? Um, I think that, you know, um, I think as providers or, you know, as people seeking providers to help them, it's important to, you know, kind of the one thing I always say is like, you know, you just have to listen to your patients. And so um, eliminating certain biases that we already have about religion or about, you know, certain subgroups, um, is very helpful to actually, like, I think treating them better too, in terms of getting a better overall picture. And so that's something I always emphasize when I talk to other providers is that, you know, um, we all have implicit bias. We're affected by what's on the media. We're affected by all the stereotypes out there. Um, but if we can kind of like just take a minute, because that's one of the things I think um, patients tell me the most, especially the ones that look like me. <laughs> like, well, I, I, and I've tried with other, you know, clinicians and this is kind of where I get at, or, you know, this is, this is how they look at me, like, go, you know, relax and have a drink and, you know, whatever. You know, yeah. like, but I think that, you know, understanding, you know, who they are, where they're coming from, and just listening to them, you know, initially, I, I get it, you and I have our own practices, so we can devote that time to our patients. But, you know, some of the other um, clinicians out there who are, you know, working for other people aren't going to have, you know, the 45 minute power. And and we didn't really talk about this, about how people that, that are particularly more observant in whatever their religion is, um, are they and should they go out of their way to find a medical clinician who is of the same religion, who's going to get it? Because I know that's why a lot of women come to see you. And yeah. when I did years ago when I did obstetrics, and that's we're going back a few years here, and, and I'm Jewish, and I had a lot of women and a lot of couples from the Jewish community who were Orthodox, who were very observant, very religious, mm-hmm. and they would come to me because I knew the rules. Even though I wasn't right. Orthodox, I knew all the rules. Right. They didn't have to explain it to me so that there was a, a comfort level in that. And I think um, even though I don't think anyone's ever really studied that, but I think it probably is, you know, something to, look at, to yeah. say that women who their religion is important to them when they are able to, when there's access, are going to seek out a physician um, who's familiar, who, who, who yeah, absolutely. stick with and their... I, I think it makes... Yeah. And I think it makes sense. I mean, I mean, even if you think about like, I even think about like when I was, you know, in OB training, 
between that and having like my first child, like I, I felt like once I had the um, experience of, of a pregnancy, I maybe started to understand, you know, a little bit more of what my patients were going through. Um, you know, and the same thing is true, I think, when it comes to some of these, you know, issues that you've already experienced, you're acculturated to believe a certain thing. Um, patients, um, you know, appreciate that they don't have to explain that to you. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, if you're someone that's, and I think this is one of the reasons I've kind of, you know, gone head first into this area, because if you experience it yourself, and you know what you, you know, what has what you've gone through, the empathy level is just different, you know, it's like different when you know, like, exa- I can, yeah, yes patient no. me, I mean, I, you know, I, it's interesting okay. to bring up because we get into the whole concept of I'm picking a female gynecologist because she's going to understand. Yeah, that's true. And and but not necessarily. Yeah. Not necessarily because you and I both. You're know right. That some of the best gynecologists and even in sexual medicine and menopause are the guys. That there are a lot yes, of women absolutely. out there who are completely clueless. And you know, I always say, yes, yes, after you had an appendectomy to do a fine appendectomy if you're a surgeon. So I think that there's yeah, a, that's true too. Yeah, you know, but so you know, of course we all bring our experiences into the office. We can't right. help but do that. And I think clearly right. there's a comfort level, but um, you know, it was I didn't really have to have a hot flash myself. To know that to know what it's bad. <laughs> this is bad, and bad, I have yeah. and not exactly. so, so exactly. I'm not disagreeing with you, but I'm just saying that that's not it's not it's not a theory or always the right because I think right. a lot of women they're like they're they're looking for the gynecologist or the the doctor who maybe you know people would say to me all the time when they would come for like a hysterectomy consult and say, well, you have you had a hysterectomy? And I'm thinking, would you ever ask that of a male gynecologist, you know, or, yeah, that's true. you know, it's, it's kind of like, this is yeah. an area of expertise, yeah. but, but it is an interesting topic. Yeah. And there's no question yeah. of comfort level and we can't, uh, can't get away from that. And maybe it's better for those patients who carry a lot of shame with them and they're not able to themselves speak out, you know? So it's, Absolutely. it's maybe dependent on sort of like, and I think that's been looked at at studies, you know, where like, you know, if you yourself, you know, have no ability to speak or don't know the vocabulary or whatever, is it easier to come to someone that, you know, you can like at least, you know, um, whose likeness kind of appeals to you so that you can then open up right. to them a little bit. But I, but I think aside from getting aside from, you know, has your doctor had the same medical condition you've had? I think yeah. really when we're talking about culture, when we're talking about religion, it is important it is important because if a woman comes to me and I'm not aware of the practices of her religion, obviously I'm happy to listen and I'm happy to learn, but that's work right. on her part. And yes. it's a lot of explanation. Yeah. And um, certainly uh, it is perfectly understandable why someone is going to, if they're you know, Muslim, is going to go see a Muslim doctor because right. they're automatically going to know all of that. So, um, right. and it's not something that generally doctors put on their websites, for example, it's on your website because you're yeah. so active in that community. And it's, it's yeah. clear from your website yeah. that, that that's something you're very familiar with and you're an expert in. But, you know, I've never put my religion on my website. Um, yeah, that's true. <laughs> because yeah. my name was changed about a million times when my family came over from Eastern Europe. You, know, you can't tell from my name. So um, oh, yeah, sometimes you can, you know, but even then you never know. So it's just, it's interesting. It's something to think about. That we- and also, you know, it's not like a, you know, it's not like a monolith, right? Like just because I have the last name of you know, I can be like, well, now I'm actually an atheist, you know? And so, you know, right. there are patients out, I mean, there are people out there who, you know, don't practice or just have that whatever, um, culturally but they you know they don't believe in it or whatever so i think you you're right you have to kind of be 
I take it with a grain of salt yeah. in some ways. Well, I, I would be really interested in, in in women that are listening to this podcast if they you know let me know if that has influenced yes. how they pick their doctor. And it would be an interesting study to do because I don't know that it has been done. But right. anyone out there who wants to direct message me about if your doctor's religion influenced your decision for that person to be your doctor, I think it would be kind of an interesting thing to know. Interesting. So, yeah. Well, yeah, thank you I so much. This has been really for me, I've, I've learned a lot and, and really kind of a fun oh, great. topic that we don't, that we don't do too often. So thanks for spending the time. I appreciate I appreciate you letting me come on your wonderful podcast. Too, we'll, so. we'll have to do this again and I will put all your information in the program notes. So thank you. Thank you so much. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. Sometimes I feel blue